On this episode of China Unscripted, China is building a wartime economy, and China's takeover of Hong Kong is just one step in the Communist Party's imperialism. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And joining us today is Max Mock, Hong Kong activist based in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Max. Hi. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. So the national security law has obviously affected the democracy movement in Hong Kong. Uh, what has been the, the change that's happened? Well, um, I think it's uh, forced the... Uh, democracy movement to change its ways of conducting itself, both domestically in Hong Kong and in the overseas as well. So um, firstly, uh, there are two phenomena that we're seeing now. Uh, the first one being uh, there's a large number of exiled activists, and uh, along that, uh, even families and people that aren't so political themselves, um, we're talking mothers and fathers, children and kids, they are all moving uh, overseas. And so what we get now here is that the uh, majority opinion, the majority of Hong Kong or where the opinion lies is now overseas and not domestically in Hong Kong. That means two things uh, to me. Uh, the first thing is that um, elections in Hong Kong will no longer mean anything. Uh, you know, before, uh, in the past two years of our, democ our pro-democratic movement, uh, we've seen attempts to take over the Legislative Council uh, by getting loads of uh, pro-democracy legislators in. Oh, the national security law proved that that path wouldn't work. And then for district councils as well, uh, we're now seeing uh, possibilities of these district councillors that are pro-democracy being cleared out by the Chinese state. And uh, we're also seeing uh, mandatory feds, uh, as you have covered on your show before. Um, China is now demanding uh, that Hong Kong politicians in general be patriotic, before they, uh, patriotic and loyal to the Chinese Communist Party before they can uh, take uh, take up their roles. So yeah, uh, with that uh, and the uh, elections no longer being a good reflection of the uh, majority will of the Hong Kong people, um, it is now more important than ever that uh, those that are exiled, the families that have gone overseas, uh, to organize ourselves again. And we're going much. Uh, in my personal view, we're going a path very similar to the Tibetan and uh, to the uh, Uyghurs as well uh, of the world uh, in that uh, we have now lost our home base, our homeland, and now we have to reorganize in our new homes out, uh, our new homes outside of home. So the national security law wasn't just a way to stop the protest. It seems like it was a way for the Communist Party to force everyone who was in Hong Kong that had pro-democracy or pro-independence uh, leanings, they all have to leave Hong Kong now, essentially, meaning the only ones left are people who will toe the party line. Well, yeah, uh, the Communist Party and the uh, Hong Kong government has never been lenient on the views of uh, independence and uh, self-determination. Even uh, before, uh, right after 2014, when the Hong Kong National Party was founded and the localist movement in Hong Kong first started, that is more pro-independence leaning, um, they have never um, been able to rest and the government has always been, uh, public opinion has always been um, quite harsh on them. So um, national security law just sets it in stone that we can't have that sort of thought in Hong Kong. But uh, I feel like uh, the atmosphere and the environment has always been quite hostile to it. Uh, the only good thing, though, I feel is, um, and this might sound uh, psychopathic, 
the scientists. But um, the, if anything, the national security law proved to the Hong Kong people that there can be no centrist way of dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. There can be no median way where we can just coexist with the party and try to tote their line uh, and try to play by their box. I mean, if anything, the past 20 years, 20 some years, have proved that that doesn't work. And national security law just tells us that um, it won't work. And not, not before and not again and never will. And it brings to the public, the Hong Kong public, uh, that independence or some sort of self-determination, uh, well, to put it into bit, uh, better terms, I feel, uh, the ability of the Hong Kong people to be able to reflect themselves in a democratic election or in some sort of uh, sovereign political entity aside from Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that is the only way forward, I feel. Yeah, I remember when we were in Hong Kong for the Umbrella Movement in 2014. At the time, the idea of Hong Kong independence was sort of seen as something kind of on the extreme side of things. Most people just were protesting for democracy, things the Communist Party had actually promised to the people of Hong Kong. But it seems like at this point, even those reasonable demands no longer will work. They forced the Communist Party has forced the people of Hong Kong into uh, an extreme position. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, that actually is a huge concern of mine. Uh, so uh, obviously I wasn't born in time for the handover and uh, the transition of sovereignty. I, I was born in 2000. I'm now 20. Uh, so I missed a lot of uh, major historical events. But uh, for the longest time in Hong Kong, the uh, public consensus was that uh, at least around 2014, around my around myself, my close circle of friends and family, was that um, nobody liked chi the Chinese Communist Party, even for the uh, Blue Ribbons or well, pro-establishment supporters um, in Hong Kong right now. Uh, even back then, uh, I think it's uh, pretty safe to say that nobody ever liked the idea of Hong Kong being fully a part of um, the Chinese Communist Party. But uh, it's never put into words and it's never put into action. And after that, very conveniently, the pan-democratic uh, pan camp in Hong Kong offered an easy solution, right? So vote for the pan-democrats, vote for these sort of certain parties that will reflect your voices in parliament and in the legislative council, and your problems will be solved and we will push us towards a path towards democracy. Well, that is a very nice promise, and it's a promise given to us for 20 years, and uh, nothing has ever come of it. And uh, I feel uh, the, the rhetoric that... Uh, we are working towards human rights and freedom in the way that we don't really know how we're going to achieve it. Uh, there's very there's a very lacking debate and lacking discussion before 2014 and before this sort of um, political rhetoric is brought up to the uh, public um, minds. So yeah, um, I view the Hong Kong masses were very pacified by institutionalized politics uh, back then uh, after 99 uh, after the handover. Certainly uh, in uh, during the umbrella movement, like you said. Uh, Hong Kong independence was seen as more radical and uh, it's not very widely accepted. If anything, the uh, results, the things that the Chinese Communist Party has done to us have showed us that um, the reason is quite simple. You cannot trust a treaty with China or well, the Chinese Communist Party. You cannot trust a treaty with the Chinese Communist Party. And under that, no matter how many basic laws or how many respects of sovereignty they write up to us, none of, that, none of that is going to matter because at the end of the day, we lack the power of enforcement, right? Britain hasn't, do, hasn't done anything. The UK hasn't done anything aside from 
uh, the BNO visas and letting us back, uh, letting some of the uh, BNO visa holders back into the UK. Well, aside from that, they hasn't actually they haven't actually held China to their word. I feel, and uh, yeah, the lack that lack of enforcement is the underlying problem with all sorts of treaties that are uh, dealt with China. The stuff back then doesn't work now yet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard for people to learn their lesson. I remember last year I was talking with a. Uh, this is before the Hong Kong uh, national security law. I was talking with a Tibetan activist in New York, and he was saying, you know, back in 1959, Tibet or the you know had signed, uh, or it was sorry before 1959, Tibet had signed uh, the 11 point agreement with the Communist Party to allow Tibet to be part of China, but it would still have autonomy, which is why it's called the you know Tibet Autonomous Region, and within a few years. The Communist Party completely broke that agreement, but essentially that was the same type of agreement as uh, the one that the Communist Party had with Great Britain over Hong Kong. And so he's like, like what what you should have done is seen uh, what's happened in in Tibet, uh, and within a few years the Dalai Lama had to flee, right? And he's like, that's probably going to happen to Hong Kong. And at the time, because this was January 2020, it wasn't fully clear just how bad things were going to go. But it turned out, of course, the the lesson from Tibet from, you know, half a century earlier was uh, unfortunately the lesson that had to be learned I, once again. You know, I bring this up because uh, one of the things that you're doing is, is working with uh, other groups, as you mentioned, uh, to sort of a solidarity standing up to the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, the reason for that is, um, firstly, uh, definitely, we need to learn from our predecessors. And Tibetan, our Tibetan predecessors, they, their struggle is very similar to ours, and especially how they have conducted and managed to organize their community services and even getting a parliament in exile, stuff like that we really have to learn from, or that sort of organizing, uh, organizing power. But uh, even beyond that, the Uyghurs now, they're facing a more... A very grave threat, more so than any other ethnic minority that comes to mind in recent days have occurred uh, in China. They also have very large diaspora communities uh, overseas. And primarily, the thing that I'm doing right now is to organize our people that have already been naturalized in our new homes. So, uh, what that means is um, we have done, we have tried to talk to politicians to raise concern for our causes. But uh, it sometimes really does feel like we are begging without any chips on our side. Right on humanitarian grounds, we're, we're trying to get them to sympathize with us, which does work because a lot of these uh, countries like Australia, where I'm at right now, they're quite sympathetic and uh, they, they, they do value human rights. But um, at, some, at some certain point when economic interests and other interests come into play, um, their ability to do things are quite restricted. So um, to organize our votes, uh, since we're nationalized, we have citizenship and we have the right to vote. To use When we say, like the Hong Kongers back in our protest days, we used to say whatever the cost, right? So whatever the cost doesn't just mean giving up your lives, which is which is noble, I think, to, to be able to give up your lives for that. But um, And I respect that. But uh, there needs to be a lot more under the umbrella of whatever the costs. And one of those things I feel, and a lot of my friends feel as, as well here in Australia, is that it also means um, making use of every bit of civil liberties that we have. 
here in Australia and using our civil rights to the fullest extent to get our diaspora voices heard. And uh, with the votes, we will tell the Parliament of Australia, we'll, par we'll tell the parliaments of the world that um, the sympathisers with those human rights abuses uh, will not be tolerated in our parliaments. And we will show them with our votes that they will not be staying there long. Well, isn't that going to be challenging because Australia is a perfect example of this. The Chinese Communist Party has huge influence operations in Australia, particularly in Parliament. How how do you deal with the Communist Party having this kind of global reach? Very much so. Thank you. Um, yeah. It, well, I have been in Australia for a couple of years now, uh, although I have been back in Hong Kong, back and forth for the past, uh, past two years. And the infiltration can really be felt on all sorts of levels. On university campuses, uh, when, the, uh, when the early protest days first started, I mean, we get, um, yeah, Chinese Communist Party sympathizers, those teenagers at school, they terrorize and then they send threat messages to students that they speak up as a Hong Konger or to students that would use Hong Kong as a cultural as, as an example in their projects, as a culturally distinct entity from China. So whatever thing that pisses them off, uh, they will bash you on uni campuses and they'll get away scot-free. And uh, Australia, fortunately enough, is, has started an inquiry into uh, infiltration on university ground. And I feel like the country is on a right track in, some, in terms of those policies in combating uh, infiltration locally. But like, definitely, like you said, in parties, in Aust political parties in Australia and in industry in Australia, on every facet of life, we don't mean to make an enemy out of the Chinese people, obviously. Uh, um, we vary in cultures and we vary in political opinions. But um, a lot of these um, Chinese Communist Party agents and infiltrators, they've gotten themselves into the mix and uh, using the leniency and using the um, more passive way that the Australian government has been taking against China, um, their, their roots have taken quite deeply. Uh, so, um, but I feel like the policies are in line to combat that now. And I feel like uh, if our diaspora communities and more uh, interest communities do speak up uh, and uh, we do call out these events when they happen, so that the government can act accordingly. I feel like uh, that will help a bit. Is there a large uh, Hong Kong diaspora in Australia? Definitely, yeah. And it's only growing, right? Even before 2019, I've spoken to a lot of um, immigrants uh, since the 2000s and uh, in, because they've come to our events and they come to protest as well. It's been growing since 2014. A lot of people have the foresight that the national security law or something as evil was going to come for Hong Kong. So uh, quite a bit of people left back then. And uh, in past, even further before, um, past events in Hong Kong have grown. A lot of people, uh, uh, Hong Kong immigrants into Australia. And after 2019, we, are, we have yet to see a huge refugee level upsurge, but the number is definitely growing. And we are seeing a lot uh, in, in Hong Kong's uh, social media sphere as well more and more information on immigrating to Australia and other Western countries like Canada and the U.S. has been uh, growing. And uh, yet yeah, the, the diaspora community is only getting bigger. Is uh, Was it Ted Hui, the, the former lawmaker who recently moved to Australia? Oh, yes. Yes, it is. 
Okay, so you're getting some because I think a lot of people think of the UK as a big kind of hub for Hong Kong diaspora uh, and activism. Uh, you know, Nathan Law is there. The UK just they just opened a fund f- to help Hong Kongers like immigrate to the UK. But I think we don't necessarily think about some of these other Commonwealth countries like Australia and Canada as having um, the political power that they that they actually do. Yes. Um, so um, that brings me to another point as well. The work that uh, I would like to do here in Australia and and in his mind is to tell basically the world, the, the local government here in Australia and Hong Kongers as well, that um, it doesn't have to be a handout. And so the way I'm trying to frame this is um, Australia itself is lacking in labour force and uh, we can really use a lot of skilled labour and we can use skilled immigrants uh, from Hong Kong as well. And this is something that Hong Kong has to offer. And uh, these, the stimulus that the, um, the upsurge of uh, Hong Kong immigrants into Australia, uh, we need to think about uh, how we can benefit the um, economy and the community here uh, domestically as well uh, before we pitch this sort of like um, rescue, safe haven ha- uh, plans. And uh, Australia has put out the uh, five-year plan, uh, a five-year transition plan for for students, uh, for students, Hong Kong students here in Australia to transition into permanent residence. But uh, that's not quite working because um, leaving lots of people that don't necessarily have the capital for that or don't necessarily have the skill set for those specifically required uh, um, uh, skill sets that Australia government is looking for, for uh, to make it happen. So, um, yeah, I think um, we need uh, for Australia definitely doesn't have as much resources, I feel, uh, politically speaking as well, because we are much more dependent on China economo- economically and uh, geographically as well. We can't really just on the go and put out a huge plan to get uh, thousands or tens of thousands of Hong Kongers in. But uh, we need to encourage that uh, debate and we need to um, show the Australian government and the domestic community that um, we're not here to take things over. We're here to assist and we're here to help. So speaking of of, uh, Hong Kongers trying to emigrate from Hong Kong, is the city has about seven and a half million people. Uh, how many Hong Kongers do you think would want to leave Hong Kong and settle in other countries if they could? Well, uh, I think the numbers may vary, but uh, I think um, I'm definitely not an expert uh, on those numbers. And I think uh, even if we did a survey, uh, the numbers would be quite muddled. Um, because in the 7 million people, a lot of them are pro-establishment, I feel. Well, a good number of them are pro-establishment. And then also on top of that, we'll get, um, well, back in the localist era or a couple of years earlier, uh, we'll, we have, uh, we, we, Hong Kong has seen a large upsurge of um, mainland immigrants, mainland Chinese immigrants into Hong Kong. Is it the will of the Hong Kong people that identifies as a Hong Konger to leave Hong Kong? Or is it, the mainland Chinese immigrants that have always been trying to get out of China, uh, is it they will get out of Hong Kong? So, you know, the, the demographics are really mixed and it's a bit hard to say. I think one thing that's interesting about what you said, Max, about the idea of like changing the way that um, 
you talk about Hong Kongers coming to Australia or different places as like, you know, not asking for a handout, but making a contribution. Um, what's interesting about that is when we were in Australia in 2018, I remember there was a lot of antipathy towards a lot of the mainland Chinese um, coming to Australia. But a lot of that was because a lot of the people were kind of quite wealthy and um, buying houses for to kind of as somewhere to park their money, but they actually wouldn't live in Australia. They were, you know, kind of like buying these houses, like driving up the real estate market so that, you know, people couldn't buy houses to actually live in. Uh, and they were, you know, trying to get citizenship, a place to kind of like get their money out of China. Um, and I think there was definitely that idea that, you know, uh, Australians are, they don't like the Chinese coming in that could be seen in a very negative way. But um, what's interesting from what you're saying is, you know, we're here to make a contribution, like this is going to be our home. And I think that's, uh, th I think that's something that would be much more welcome. Yeah, definitely. So I think um, a lot of the times, well, I'm not saying, so first of all, just as a disclaimer, because this is quite a bit of a sensitive topic, is that, um, I'm not denying that there is Asian racism or racism against ra Asians uh, in Australia and in other Western countries as well. I've seen it, I've experienced it. I do think that it's real and it's living and it's a problem that we need to address. But uh, another, on the other side of the coin is that, uh, that that sort of sentimentality. We have, to, we have to separate sentiments from the facts. And uh, a lot of times, uh, China would like to, uh, well, the Chinese Communist Party would like to play to those sentiments and they try to amplify it and amplify the results that are, uh, the consequences um, uh, that, that it indicates uh, in order to scare a, a lot of um, more progressive people uh, into refraining from uh, criticizing the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, we need to get past that. Uh, like you said, um, immigration was never the problem. Uh, it is the respect for the local community and the contribution to the local community uh, that that is the problem, uh, and that is the, the the thing that we need to address as immigrants. The Chinese Communist Party and a lot of their larger corporations they have been buying up strategic resources, and they have been, like you said, uh, buying up real estate mark uh, real real estate and driving up the real estate uh, real estate market prices. But that's only the perfect. The 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 core of the problem is that. Uh, these investors and these people uh, and these Chinese communist agents in Australia, the, they are not acting with the interests of Australia in mind, and they are acting with China and well, the People's Republic of China, acting with that regime's interests in mind. And um, when Australian land and Australian resources are put to work, the value isn't going back into the local economy. That. Uh, the government would have expected or that the community would have expected it's sucked out and then it's gone into other sources and channels back into the mainland chinese economy and mainland chinese regime as sustenance and that at the end of the day is the problem if an immigrant starts a business here and then it contributes them into the local economy uh, like as i think that most hong kongers would do if we do get the chance to come to australia i don't think that would be a problem well, so something you mentioned earlier, um, that I think is very important uh, as, as an example that Hong Kong has for the rest of the world. The Communist Party did not keep its promise with Hong Kong. And yet, 
Hong Kong should be an example for the rest of the world. We should we should see how the Chinese Communist Party does not value what it promises. And yet we still have Australia's good example around the world. Governments and especially corporations still eager to uh, get into China, to work with the Chinese Communist Party, completely oblivious to the very real history of it, ignoring promises in the cases of corporations, stealing intellectual property and running businesses out of the country. Uh, so Hong Kong, I think, has, plays a very important model. Um, Hong Kong is a good example for the rest of the world that the rest of the world should learn from. But it still seems like people have this sort of uh, like blinders on when dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, they're trying to pitch the same ex very similar plan to the Taiwanese as well. And I'm just grateful to see that uh, it's, it's not going through anytime soon uh, but um yes um there is a tendency for the wider community to ignore lessons from history and a lot of the times there's some sort of uh, exceptionalism i feel uh from all sorts of different countries and cultures when it comes to dealing with the chinese communist party well here in australia as well uh in the, i didn't quite know what was going through the premier's mind but um Victoria, the state of Victoria, uh, almost uh, went into a Belt and Road Agreement to have uh, Chinese capital and Chinese Communist Party act in Victoria and act with Victorian's government, uh, Victoria's government. And um, it was only when it went to the uh, went to a federal level when it was turned down. I, I don't know where, where quite the problem is, but uh, it it it, does, it it doesn't take. A history lesson or history class. We just have to look to our neighbors at this point, right? It it does seem that there's a little bit of that, like, well, you know, it has to happen to you before you kind of realize what what's happening. Uh, do you feel like over the summer, Australia basically China launched essentially a type of like economic warfare against the Australian government, were trying to block Australian imports, uh, all this kind of stuff. Have you seen a change? Uh, in Australia, t in the attitude towards the Chinese Communist Party since that started happening? I would say certain members or certain politicians have. Uh, it's definitely not a consensus. Um, it, it definitely isn't where we want it yet. I mean, um, just a couple of months ago, an Australian professor working right now in the Chinese uh, mainland, writing an article on me and on the ABC condemning us um, or condemning the ABC for terrorism and uh, aiding and abetting terrorism, basically along those lines. I mean, when scholars are allowed to do that, when Australian scholars are actively doing that in Australia and abroad, and politicians as well, uh, when, they're, when they're still trying to ignore the basic fact that what's happening in Xinjiang province right now, or occupied East Turkestan right now, is a genocide and would use different trickery of words to get around saying it, like total genocide or, or atrocities, stuff like that, when they can't really, when they, when they are fearing just condemning it, condemning a genocide, uh, I think we have, we're still quite some ways to go. But by the way, congratulations on being slandered by the Chinese Communist Party and the people uh, they're linked <laughs> to, because that means that you're doing something that they fear, which means it's something important. So good job on that. I thank you. I wear it like a badge of honor every day. Yeah. So what do you think 
is the Communist Party's next move in Hong Kong? Uh, for instance, we don't see the uh, Great Firewall of China activated in Hong Kong yet. Well, at this point, it's all speculation. But uh, one thing that I don't hope to see, let's, uh, let's start with that. Yep. Definitely, politically speaking, I don't think much actions can be done now, as the, at, at least not conventional politics. Um, not in the parliament, not in the legislative council, not in the district councils as well, because they're now being vetted, and now they're under so much scrutiny, uh, well, they're under so much monitoring from the Chinese Communist Party, that basically one campaign material that signals at democracy can get them jailed and get families torn apart. I do, I really do commend and have the deepest respects for all the participants of the primary elections that were arrested and now are now behind bars and under trial um, in Hong Kong. Uh, that said, um, going forward, I don't think much things can be done politically. The only thing, the most thing, uh, the thing that I fear most now that the Chinese Communist Party does is that it, they will then crack down on even more intangible things other than politics. They'll start cracking down on culture and they'll start cracking down on language, which is two things that they have done before in different regions China that they have occupied, and uh, it's definitely the road that we're headed if we do take those models uh, in, uh, into com- uh, into reference. So you think they're going to get rid of Cantonese and get rid of traditional characters and replace it all with, uh, you know, Mandarin from the mainland? Well, yeah, uh, language definitely. Well, they have done this. They've tried doing this so many times before. It's only that uh, we have to tell against it again and again. I mean, uh, in, before around even before 2016 and uh, in the early years, the National Education Bill we tried to push through to change our Chinese history into state-approved Chinese history, and then they tried to push for this curriculum. They tried to push for the Chinese language curriculum in Hong Kong to adopt Mandarin as the uh, language of use. Uh, other than Cantonese, and they have done so much propaganda on how Mandarin's supposed to be better than Cantonese and stuff like that. And even in neighboring uh, Guangzhou, inside their own uh, jurisdiction and, so- uh, and, and sovereignty, uh, they have cracked down on their own ethnic Cantonese language. So um, language is definitely one of the first to go, argue. Yes. What is the culture um, that you're talking about that you're afraid that could be endangered? Well, uh, thank you again. It's really good uh, segues today. Um, since the crackdown in the political activities of Hong Kong uh, after the persisting movement that started at June 9, a couple, of, a lot of people that really do love Hong Kong have brought the movement into their lives and brought in brought it in separate ways. So, uh, in really recent years, well, recently this year especially, um, there's been an upsurge of uh, local artists and uh, local musicians, and a lot of money and is put into the arts here locally by people who do love Hong Kong and do want to put Hong Kong under the spotlight. Will the mentioning of Hong Kong as a unique identity or unique culture be outlawed as well? I mean, that is certainly something that the Chinese Communist Party can do and will do, uh, as if it is anything that we know. On top of that, uh, made in Hong Kong, a lot of initiatives have been taken to support local produce and local industry to revive uh, the economy locally um, to, to actually manufacture other than relying on the economy that is more finance-based 
Oh, so just to make Hong Kong more than just a money, a money laundering machine for the Chinese Communist Party and to make it into an actual li living and breathing city. Lots of that work has been done. Lots of uh, industry has been revived and is reviving. I just, I, I fear for the day where media in Hong Kong has become, has become outlawed and the label itself is, uh, can be evidence for violation of the national security law. I really don't want to see that happen, but I, I do see it happening. Imagine if those like I love New York shirts were taken as a as, as you know like an example of like you're being against the U.S. if you say you love New York. Yeah, well, you know, remember you you probably saw this, Max, the the movie Ten Years by Andrew Choi, not the one with Channing Tatum, but the the one about Hong Kong. Uh, and and there's the whole like one of the the short films within that was like uh, the vendor wanted to sell eggs labeled as local eggs. And that became a problem because it was seen as like somehow pro Hong Kong being a separate entity. And it's it's like it's like what you're saying, it's like it's almost like that prediction is like just about to come true. Yes. Basically everything that was supposed to be happen happening in ten years as the filmmakers have predicted, <laughs> the agenda's been pushed forward. And uh the actors act actually uh, the actor for that part of the short film who, who played the fender, he just died. And he himself has been a great advocate for the Hong Kong arts. Also the uh, sketch, uh, the, the part about how taxi drivers are no longer allowed to speak Cantonese and are now then mandated to speak Mandarin, stuff like that, we do see it happening. And uh, I think it's, it's just the logical next step for the Chinese Communist Party today, given their past records. It is a type of cultural genocide that the Communist Party has used in Tibet, Mongolia, East Turkestan. Yes, yes. Cultural, cultural genocide is definitely agreed on, I feel. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the language thing is a lot of people outside China don't have this, this full grasp of all the different Chinese dialects. But what's happened, as I see it, is that the, the Communist Party has not only enforced Mandarin, but has enforced a kind of party-speak Mandarin that involves uh, words taking on certain connotations that are aligned with the Communist Party's values, uh, simplified characters, which are some of them have their meanings uh, reduced or removed after having been simplified from the traditional characters. And so you kind of have this, this partly bastardized version of Mandarin. And then when you don't allow people to speak Cantonese or uh, Uyghur, or uh, Tibetan or any of the other ethnic languages. Like there are certain things that just don't translate into modern Mandarin. And so a lot of the concepts, uh, a lot of the like, like deeper ideas and meanings behind words no longer exist because the languages in which they exist have been marginalized. And so you, it actually changes people's thinking uh, when they're forced to speak only the Communist Party's Mandarin. Yes, uh, I really do agree with that point where you say it's not just the language that they're forcing upon us. It's also the culture behind it and the new, the new speak, the double speak, the version of Mandarin that um, the Chinese Communist Party has approved of. And even in Hong Kong right now, even if it hasn't been mandated yet, in our slogans, and in company slogans and in banners everywhere, we see it happening. 18 characters 
really short and succinct things that are overly dramatic and overly blown up uh, when it comes to stuff like loyalty. Um, certain values that the Chinese Communist Party would really expect from their subjects, those sort of banners are out are up everywhere and in virtually uh, a lot of marketing here in Hong Kong. I mean, before I left, I've already seen it. The city is no longer what I used to know, uh, even without the full-blown cultural genocide happening in Hong Kong. The, pro- the propaganda slogans. Yeah, once once you see those, that's uh, like, it, yeah, in mainland China, you know, it's like they're actually all over the place, even though it's a little less obvious now than it might have been during the Cultural Revolution. But you see them on billboards, you see them on... Uh, just banners just and banners. Like, like I, I, I remember uh, in Beijing seeing like on the side of a delivery truck, it was like taxation is the lifeblood of our country. Honest taxpayers of, are of great credit to the nation and the people. Like, but it was all this like propaganda slogan that was like, it's just, it just kind of permeated the whole country in this kind of weird and subtle way that, that just always made me a little bit uncomfortable, like at some level I couldn't quite describe. Yes, it's almost like the party is omniscient in every aspect of daily life. And it's really quite haunting. And I, di- I didn't expect to see it in my lifetime in Hong Kong, but it, it has happened and it is happening and it will continue to happen. Well, so that's a good point. Uh, people definitely had grim predictions of what the Chinese Communist Party would do to Hong Kong. But I think it was a surprise to many how quickly it happened. It really accelerated over the past couple of years. Why do you think the Chinese Communist Party suddenly felt like it had to reign in Hong Kong? Right. Thank you. Um, a couple of things I feel, and this might be somewhat of a hot take, but um, I feel like um, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party is the worst manifestation of a very long-standing problem of the Chinese Communist Party and of the culture behind it. The term that I would like to use is Chinese imperialism. And uh, when we talk about imperialism, it's always about colonization, or, or well, colonization in the age of discovery, as we know it. But um, what we don't, what we often ignore is the heaven's mandate and uh, the Chinese version of its own imperialism. For thousands of years, they have done this. I mean, it, it comes, and, and it should come as no surprise, the assimilation and forced, well, forced assimilation and the homogenizing of cultures has been the way of expansion uh, for its culture of rule for the Han sphere. And uh, in all throughout Chinese history, it's happened. And it's just that what's happening to Hong Kong now, East Turkestan and Tibet before, uh, is in a modern context. But the largest standing problem is that they feel a need to rule and they feel a, uh, they feel a need to dominate. And the uh, this sort of problem is manifested in Xi Jinping in more, more so than anybody else. We see that Xi Jinping right now, he's not building a country or he's not trying to get the country into a path of prosperity. He's trying to build an empire and that is exactly what he's doing. The island chains that are China and Sensit have covered so many times before, like uh, the Philippines and stuff like that uh, in the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line, uh, all sorts of aggression, it's outwards, right? That they're oppressing people internally and at the same time they're expanding outward. The intolerance for diversity within their borders or within their sort of cultural sphere, well, 
they will only allow certain token minorities to exist, like the Chinese state propaganda. Uh, there was a very uh, disgusting piece of Chinese propaganda put out recently, where they showed uh, where where they showed uh, Uyghur people dancing in a musical and saying stuff like, uh, well, basically signaling that nothing is happening in Xinjiang or nothing is happening in occupied East Turkestan, uh, to and then showing that in the Australian press conference. Well, when it's under the when it's under surveillance and supervision like that, they can't allow token race. Uh, they can't allow um, token minorities and voices to be heard. But uh, only if it's under their dominance. So yeah, that's I feel it's their expansionist outlook on the world that is causing all these sort of, sort of problems. And uh, his ambition on uh, she's ambition on top of this sort of uh, lifelong term as the ruler of China, uh, ruler of the People's Republic of China. So is it possible, uh, with the Chinese Communist Party having clear intentions to, well, kind of, as you say, Chinese imperialism, take over the South China Sea, take over Taiwan, the Communist Party felt like it had to get Hong Kong under control before it could successfully take on those challenges? Yes, 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 I think so. And uh, they were on a roll as well, because... Um, they have to take, well, in my view, uh, it almost feels like, uh, well, this is the most optimistic way to look at a very bad situation, I feel. Um, she and his party, uh, and, and the party under his view, uh, is a dying man making their last stand. Uh, they're now seeing this economic boom, prosperity, and really quick growth uh, all across uh, econ uh, their, their economy before COVID, right? And um, they felt so powerful. Uh, and they also knew at the same time, I feel, that uh, if they didn't use that power now, it's going to dissipate because the labor force has got to shrink and then the Chinese economy is not going to keep growing forever. So they either take these sort of shakier parts of their claimed sovereignty, like Hong Kong and China, uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan, when they have the chance or they will never take it again. So uh, they took this bet well, they took this, yeah, they took this bet where they basically just put everything in and they decided to take these places back before they don't have the power to anymore. Well, wartime economy is one way to keep the economy going. Well, I, I do think that uh, it's interesting that the expansionism has gotten worse as the economy has slowed down inside China. Like we've talked mm -hmm. before about how they're using the Belt and Road essentially to export their like excess capacity, right? Like they have too many men without jobs. Like if they send these people, if they send these factories overseas to Africa, to Central Asia, these places, they can kind of like help their economy internally and kind of like export that so they don't have to deal with the economic slowdown. And then I remember when we were talking with um, Nuri Turkel, like the, mm -hmm. some of the Uyghur activists who were saying, you know, the Belt and Road has a lot to do with what's happening in Xinjiang in East Turkestan, right? Mm -hmm. Like about how the, it's their way to kind of like they need to control Xinjiang so that they can kind of like get into Central Asia uh, it, with the Belt and Road. And I feel like Hong Kong, one thing they definitely have is the financial thing, right? Like Hong Kong's financial institutions, the financial infrastructure that's there, like being able to control that is like a key part of also expanding. Which is why sanctions, the US sanctions against all of those uh, banks and well, officials in Hong Kong is a very powerful way to challenge that. 
But it's interesting also how this uh, sort of expansionist attitude undermines what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. Uh, at one point, it's it seemed like, at least in in some parts of the segment of Taiwan, people were saying, yeah, maybe a one country, two systems thing with China is is a good solution. But obviously, after everything that's happened in Hong Kong, that made it very clear to most people in Taiwan that that kind of a peaceful resolution is not going to happen, which only leaves what the Chinese Communist Party has been promising all along, an invasion of Taiwan. Yeah, and uh, I really like the term that you used earlier. It's very much so a wartime economy that they're building. Their access to Africa, well, the alliance that they're building, friends that they're making along the way from the South China Sea and down into Africa. Uh, they're, it's, they're, they're built, and that is something that uh, the Western nations or Australia, I would use this example again, that um, they're not quite catching up on, I feel. Well, there's a potential for an almost unlimited expansion by the Communist Party, because 20 years ago, it would have seemed inconceivable that the Chinese military would be not only building out islands in the Sprat, uh, in the Spratleys in the South China Sea, but also militarizing them. Like, like that type of territorial expansion has just seemed inconceivable two decades ago. Um, but if you look at like the, uh, you know, in the early 1400s, there was a famous Chinese admiral, Zheng He, who sailed these treasure ships all the way through the Indian Ocean and down the coast of Africa. And there's even monuments in many of these places set up by Chinese traders uh, dur during that, that era, uh, you know, 600 years ago. Of course, that's not Chinese territory, right? But I can see a world in which a few decades from now, if unchecked, the Communist Party feeling this need to further expand will start saying, well, okay, well, uh, parts of Southeast Asia uh, have always belonged to China. Uh, these parts, you know, uh, along trade routes in, in India have belonged to China, Sri Lanka, uh, parts of the eastern coast of Africa uh, have been part of China for 600 years. And so, again, it sounds crazy now, but it's not really outside of what the, the pattern we've seen over the last two decades of this just like pretty aggressive uh, and largely unchecked expansion. China has the dark side of the moon. It has Mars. <laughs> since ancient yeah. times. Well, the, the moon has been part of China since ancient oh, yeah, times, true. right? I mean, Chang'e Chang flew up there and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a solid claim, Chris. And if we did say anything in outer space as well, the national security law does have reach in outer space, I feel. Uh, I think. Yeah. Wait, what? It has reach in outer space? Yeah, I don't think there's a limit on its jurisdiction. Like you can say something in the US, in the UK, anywhere you, you are, any sovereignty, as long as it's against the party. Interest. Yeah, yeah, like if we, if we are critical of uh, the Chinese Communist Party in the US and go to Hong Kong, we would still be at risk. So even right. if we go to the future Elon Musk moon base and say something against the Chinese Communist Party, we can't go to Hong Kong. We'll just wait until they dig up like fragments of like an imperial palace under Elon Musk's moon base, and then they can <laughs> claim Elon Musk's moon base. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, if, if Elon Musk doesn't, you know, change his tune on China quickly, he may end up cooperating with the Chinese, oh, a, a totally private Chinese company to build, you know, a Tesla moon base. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that goes back to the like 
Elon Musk is a smart guy and he's making the same mistake everyone makes to think that, oh, we can trust China. We can trust private Chinese companies. Even we're, 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 we did an episode about this last week about how there are even Taiwanese companies, semiconductor companies doing business with Chinese companies, private companies that are taking this technology and designing hypersonic missiles that could be used against Taiwan. Yeah, and that is exactly the problem. The, the public here, we are in the free world. Um, we need to realize one thing, which is we are already in the war, mm-hmm. right? We say that we fear war with China, we fear a conflict with China. Is war with China inevitable? Well, it's, it's already happening. It's a shadow war. It's just that we don't notice it, and it's, under, it's happening under our feet. But it doesn't mean it's not there. And the numbers are not numbered in casualties, or are not tallied up in casualties or, or, or lives lost. It's, um, well, in cases of East Turkish time it is, but uh, it is seen in our price, uh, in the price of our daily items, uh, the numbers of factories and critical infrastructure and resources that China is buying up, it's being reflected in those reports. It's just that uh, there are no active blood being shed on your soil doesn't mean there's no war happening. And this is something that we have to realize, and this is something that China realized more than anyone else. So we, we, we are still sort of stuck. Well, the public is still sort of stuck, I feel, uh, in this Francis Fukuyama end of history sort of mindset, mm-hmm. in that uh, we just sort this out diplomatically. Well, maybe we can. Well, if we do this really right, if we do this right and we do this straight and we do this quick, maybe we can avoid a full-on hot war conflict, which nobody wants to, uh, which nobody wants to see with China. But... Uh, to, to reach that point, the first thing that we have to say to ourselves is that there is an active conflict going on. Just because we ignore it doesn't mean it's not happening. And we have to reflect it in our daily lives as well. We have to know what to invest in and what not. And we have to know what to support and what not to. That is the very basic entry level into living in our modern life, in, in the life in conflict with China, I think. Well, so that that touches on a very important issue. How do we fight what you call Chinese imperialism? What I might call Chinese Communist Party imperialism. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a very long and arduous process. It, it, uh, it's persisted for thousands of years, and uh, I don't see the Chinese Communist Party admitting to imperialism anytime soon. And uh, it takes the recognition of the. Uh, uh, like you guys said just now, the many intricacies and complexities and diversities within the Chinese culture and not just homogenize everything into one single solid identity and expect that the entire nation has one opinion. Because it's worse enough, it, it's already bad enough that, that the Chinese Communist Party is doing this to their own people, forcing them to have one opinion. It's even worse when every, well, when, when the wider world as well is basically categorizing the entirety of a very large and diverse culture into one thing and basically assuming that the entire entity has the same political opinion. Oh, well, it, it, it only leaves the people that want to speak up with less choices and it's forcing them into a more bubble. So I think um, we need more criticism, uh, definitely, and uh, we need to show... Oh, well, well, one thing, which is really fake as well, but um, we, we need to show by sanctions and, um, well, mainly sanctions, I feel, that the, the Chinese Communist Party is not invulnerable. If you feel, if you're a minority, if, if you are an interest group, if you're a stakeholder in China or you're a stakeholder in the outlying parts of China, 
the sovereign outlying parts of China, like East Turkestan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and uh, and Tibet. Um, if you're in these areas that being active surveillance and oppression of the Chinese Communist Party, um, the, the, the free world needs to show these oppressed communities that the Chinese Communist Party is not invulnerable and it, that, and it does have its weak moments. And if we all just band it together, there is a chance of toppling this one to So uh, this is a really grand dream and uh, it does sound like I'm talking about a fairy tale now, but this sort of sentiment, right, uh, this is something that the Chinese Communist Party is doing very well. They're crafting this fairy tale of a glorious new Chinese empire being built in the East and expanding its wings into the West, right? And this sort of stuff have captured the popular imagination. And even if it sounds insane on paper and spoken out loud, it, it does have an effect. And there's no sort of popular imagination in what kind of world we could build out, uh, without reliance on China. And that lack of imagination where in a world where we can stop relying on China is what uh, is what we're fighting against. It's an ideological war. It's a war in inside our heads right now. So you're saying we need to kind of build that idea. Like, what would it mean to not support uh, the Chinese Communist Party's oppression of other people? What would decoupling look yeah. like? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, definitely, with we will we'll definitely more. Uh, we'll definitely need more dissent. Like uh, with great channels like yours and uh, with many other medias, um, we'll, we'll continue building this in. That's for that's for sure. And uh, on a government level, um, it's, it means more sanctions, and it means um, targeted sanctions as well. Like the Amnesty Act itself, it's pretty, uh, it's a very good bill to put forward. But on top of that, there needs to be it, it needs to be more wide scale. In where we the first thing we do is to come from a place of power like uh, the sanctions if we continue to trade to china on one hand and then on the other hand we sanction with them or in one hand we do a sort of a trade and interest and then on the other hand we say that we're going to sanction on certain products uh if this reliance continues and our industry is still depleting and still going away and for that i mean the free will if the free will is still exporting and losing most of the industry and market power our sanctions won't mean anything to China very soon, because they can sustain their own. They can sustain themselves, and they can build the things that they need, because they already have built a wartime economy. And by that, it means they are now almost at a self-sufficiency, at a point of self-sufficiency. And uh, when that happens, sanctions won't mean anything. So, uh, it, it, so to, in order for us to 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 make our sanctions mean something, to make our words mean something. The free world must rebuild its own economy, I feel, before anything else, so that we come from a place of power and then we can tell China that um, our trade does have an impact on your economy, despite what you like to think. Yeah, we're in a very dangerous situation right now. Most of the U.S. medical equipment and medicine is made in China. What if one day China decides to sanction the U.S. and stop sending that stuff to us? We don't have the infrastructure to build it. The U.S. is actually in an okay position, but like countries like Canada, mm. like uh, Canada is having terrible trouble with the vaccine for coronavirus right now because they do not really? have the infrastructure to manufacture their own vaccines. So they can't vaccinate enough people. Mm. So like the U.S. is in a better position, but countries like Canada, Australia, like these kind of these like Western democracies that we need as allies to be able to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party, they, they rely a lot more on mm. China. Uh, than we do. So yeah, it's important to to kind of 
like the Five Eyes shouldn't just be a like a like a security national security alliance, right? Mm-hmm. Like we should have be an economic alliance. Go so ahead. Like the Five Hands. <laughs> that just sounds weird. It does sound weird. But like working together, you know, holding hands or at least yes. fist bumping because it's, you know, COVID. There you go. Elbow bumping. Oh, oh, like we were, we would call it the five hands instead of the five Because we're working together in partnership on a wide range of things besides just security. Mm-hmm. Max, you were going to say something? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, sums it up. Yeah, five hands. Five hands sums it up. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I do think that what you're saying, Max, about like now is the time to act is such an important point for people to understand because uh, the Chinese Communist Party is actively building uh, resilience to sanctions. Like they're actively trying to build a financial system where they don't have to be uh, affected by sanctions. They don't have to rely on the U.S. dollar. I mean, they're still years off from being able to build that fully, but they recognize what's happening and there's, they're already starting. So They are working towards the goal. Oh, yeah. We are not. Yeah, we do not believe that that could ever happen, right? That, mm. you know, that they could build a second financial system that doesn't Most rely on the dollar. Most people don't know we're in a war with China. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, we, well, it starts, well, we can... A lot of the times when we talk going into topics like this, does it mean like stop buying certain products from certain brands? Of course it does. But then a lot most of the burden is then slanted off to the little guy and onto us normal civilian citizens. Stuff like this kind of well, like tectonic movements like this have to be led by the government and uh, the elected members of parliament. This cannot be done from a down-to-top level, or that only works when it's dissent and when it's opinion, and um, when we're trying to get certain opinions through. But uh, when it comes to large-scale acts like this, well, we can tell people to stop buying from uh, Chinese made uh, from from Chinese Communist Party-owned firms and factories. But then, what alternative does that leave them? Nothing, right? And even if they wanted to support their local uh, own local industries, maybe it's unaffordable. And maybe it's not the brand recognitions and the uh, market isn't as the supply chains there aren't as sophisticated or well aren't, aren't as matured as the tra- uh, as trading with China. That's just more convenient just to buy things ready made from China. Well, so it means on a policy level uh, there needs to be more sort of a top down approach when it comes to bringing industry back. And uh, there really is no bargaining on that. It's, well, call it a wartime economy, call it self-sufficiency, call it uh, what we want. But uh, in order to bargain at all, we need the bargaining chips. And uh, it comes from the government. And we need to see them act now. Well, it comes from the people pressuring their governments to do something. Well, yeah, of course, as well. But, but because um, uh, I, the, the, reason, the only reason why I say that is because... Um, a lot of the boycott campaigns, or oh, I've seen too many boycott campaigns being um, brought up uh, in, on the internet. And in Hong Kong as well, that we had our fair share of boycott campaigns. But uh, it, sometimes it just feels, we just feel powerless because we know that um, changing our daily routine, just the, just the thousand of, or just the one thousand of us won't really change much. And especially when public opinion isn't, aware of the fact that we are in the war with China yet, it's really hard to mobilize like over 50% of the public masses to not buy China or not buy Chinese made goods or Chinese 
Communist Party made goods. So yeah, uh, it, the boycott campaigns really, it, it really does feel lacking, a bit lacking still. Yeah, I think you make a good point about that kind of power when it's concentrated as political power towards, like you said, Chris, towards the elected representatives of your country. Uh, because we've seen it, it's taken the U.S. government and the Commerce Department like outright banning U.S. companies from selling certain sensitive technology to companies affiliated with the Chinese military to actually get that to stop, right? It took the Trump administration, like the Biden administration just stopped us from selling semiconductors to seven Chinese companies. The Trump administration stopped uh, several Chinese companies linked to the U.S. military from trading on the New York Stock Exchange. But if the if the U.S. government hadn't stopped uh, stepped in on national security grounds, that would still be happening. U.S. companies would be partnering with private Chinese companies, quote unquote, even though these private companies are like run by generals in the People's Liberation Army. You know, former generals. Former gen but Chris, you know. there's money to be made. Uh, <laughs> it's it, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors to make as much money as possible until so a hypersonic missile blows up in your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's happening in Australia as well. The Australian yeah. Defense Force has a lot of data stored in a Chinese-owned company in an offshore database, and uh, oh. that still baffles me uh, till this day. Like, how this sort of sensitive information? How do we? let a hostile or potential host, a potentially hostile geopolitical power take control of these sensitive as information. It's, it's, it's gone past the point where we're, where we're supposed to be cautious, right? Because most of the public, they're cautious about certain regimes. So they squirm when it comes to North Korea and in other sorts of conflicts around the world they have their own sort of uh, stance on it which is good which which is needed to have an opinion and uh, but it almost seems like there's this um eerie coincidence where people just collectively lose an opinion when it comes to china like it's well i know but china right it's always it's just, we always hear that a lot uh, the, no matter how political they are or no matter how many views on human rights or on uh the building of domestic economies that they uh, that they have, and when it comes to China, they just collective stop talking, and they collectively lose the ability to debate or to converse and 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 build up rhetoric. So um, that also has to do with uh, Chinese agent networks, well, infiltration networks overseas. I feel uh, because it is more so than just economy, because uh, when it comes to China, there is a natural threat. I feel. Um, to uh, to to your family and to yourself. When it's run like a triad, there's a lot more to fear than just losing a couple of bucks. So um, I'm not saying that the Chinese Communist Party actively threatens uh, everyone that dissents against them, but uh, definitely the atmosphere of fear that they have conducted and that they have orchestrated over the free world is taken quite effectively, I think. Yeah, I think... Like in 10 years, people are going to look back and be like, how could we be so stupid when dealing with the Chinese Communist Party? I'm just kidding. In 10 years, we'll all be wishing glorious chairman Xi Jinping a happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Max, thanks for joining us today. If somebody listening wants to learn more about you or what you're doing, where should they go? You can follow me on Twitter 
It's uh, Max Mock Cheeto. That is uh, M A X M O K C H I T O. Or you can get me on. Uh, you can follow me on um, Instagram. It's uh, M O K C H I M A X. And those are the two most uh, active accounts that I hold right now. And I'll be posting activities in Australia and abroad on there quite regularly. And where can we learn more about uh, Hong Kong or protection against Chinese expansion? Right, yes. Uh, we've got a Facebook page and an Instagram page. On Instagram, it's HK Pace Official. And uh, on Facebook, it's just our full name spelt. We didn't have time to talk, and talk, talk about this today, but uh, we, we started this Hong Kong diaspora organization in Australia to band together the collective power of the Hong Kong diaspora. Hong Kongers from all different of ethnicities and cultures to show that Hong Kong does not belong to China. Hong Kong is its own separate identity, and we are as diverse as a multicultural society as any multicultural society out there. And that is the furthest thing away from China that is multicultural. All right, thanks. I'll put links to those uh, in the description below. Max, thanks again. It's been great to have you on. Thank you. Well, so the lesson I took away from all of that is that even though things are very, very bad in Hong Kong, they can still get worse. You know, I kept thinking when Max was talking about the whole, uh, you know, the Chinese imperialism thing and all of this stuff, like people not realizing what's happening. I kept thinking about the that quote from The Usual Suspects uh, that mm-hmm. where, you know, I'm talking about Kevin Spacey's character. Kaiser Sosa. He's like talking in the beginning. No, don't spoil it, Matt. Oh. Oops. Oops. We're gonna we're gonna thirty year old movie. <laughs> we're gonna talk. He the whole quote about how like the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Oh yeah, wasn't that from a Twilight Zone originally? Maybe yeah. Well, I mean, I only saw it in the Usual Suspects. So. Okay. Well, so what do you mean by that? Well, the whole idea that we're at war with the Chinese Communist Party—they can just hide it, right? Like hmm. they're doing all this stuff to wage economic warfare, political warfare, all these things that we've been talking about for the last eight years. And they're able to, at the same time, hide it. That it's it's no, Con- it doesn't happen. It's not happening. Yeah, Convince mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. happening, and also may somehow trigger a Pavlovian response uh, in governments and media around the world to be afraid of angering China in case we get into a war. You know what I mean? Like it's, the whole like weird, angering yeah. China thing, where like, oh well, we can't, we can't, you know, we can't like increase tensions. Like, what well, what would happen? What like what horrible like what what are they imagining would happen? Maybe they would you know get kicked out of China. Their little businesses or their little newspapers and media companies get kicked out of China. Yeah, that would never happen if we didn't make China mad. It's not like the New York Times isn't already kicked out of China. Uh huh. Yeah, but, but I mean, like NBC has their Olympic broadcast contract. Do they have an interest in maintaining? You know their relationship. So there's all the sports teams. There's a lot. There's a lot of. Um, you know, you major U.S. companies that have these extremely strong. It's like you know, Major League Baseball, right? I mean, they're, you know, they they you know want to boycott Georgia because of the voting law, but like they're happy to have, you know, set up shop with the MLB in China. Or this whole right? like, literally, the NBA had a basketball training camp in Xinjiang. Yeah, I mean, I think they should they should boycott that because you know the people in Xinjiang you know, aren't even allowed to vote if they show ID. Uh, you know, I think... Yeah, just like Major League Baseball, you knock that one right out of the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> I, the thing about the, like, 
it almost feels I was going to say this sounds terrible, but it almost feels like what needs to happen is some, you know, like somebody who's like a high ranking Wall Street official needs to get arrested in China. Like it just flat out arrested and like, tortured, you know, but at the same time, now I'm thinking maybe that wouldn't make any difference because that happened with an Australian Stern who from Rio Tinto, yeah. like back in the mid 2000s. Ah, but, but the difference is, and this is horrible that this is the difference, but he was ethnically Chinese. And so like the, the sad truth is people just don't care as much, even though he was an Australian citizen. They're just like, oh, well, maybe like that's kind of OK ish. Which it's not. And I think what's what we've seen with, with Canada uh, and the Communist Party's detention and then later official arrest and charges against the two Michaels, right? Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. It's like, these are Canadians, but they're also white Canadians, so they look Canadian. And I think the issue now has has become a much broader part of the public consciousness in Canada. Um, but it doesn't stop. Canada from doing business with China. I mean, I'm not advocating for somebody to get arrested. I'm just no, saying. But that's unfortunately it's, like. It's kind of like the thing we we're talking about where like if it doesn't happen to you, you don't think it it's going to happen ever. You know, it, well, yeah. don't worry if a Wall Street executive is ever arrested in China. We'll be sure to make an episode about that and, you know, call for his his or her release. So, yeah, we got their back. I think that like it kind of doesn't matter anymore what. Before, I thought that, you know, if you were not Chinese, you would be safer in yeah. China. It was true for a period of time. And now we're in this kind of area where it might not be so true anymore. No, I don't think it's true anymore at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely felt safe as a white person in China, in mainland, last time I was there. But it's just, yeah, but that was many years ago. The U.S. State Department warned against travel in China, partially for coronavirus and partially because of politically motivated detentions. I believe that's still the case. I don't think they've removed that. No, I don't right. think so. It, 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 now you <laughs> did they add possibility of getting anal swab to that travel warning? Well, I mean that's a that's a, that's a pro depending on how you. Okay, uh, we should. No, but but the, <laughs> but the the point is that like you can be arrested arbitrarily, and because of the way Chinese laws are written, they can actually detain you first and then decide later what the charges are going to be like there's no like you don't have to have committed a crime first they can always figure that out later yeah after they've tortured you to get, get you to some kind them. of confession from you then they can make it up and, and if you don't confess they'll do uh what they've done to some people is they basically take their denial of things but like edit it together in a video as if it's a confession to something or they'll drug you into a confession as like they drug peter humphrey right I mean, well, it's... no, but I'm talking about Peter Humphrey because, like, he never actually confessed to things, but they selectively edited that and then made it seem as if he was confessing, which he is adamant that he did not. And this, this, all, all of these things have already happened. We're getting to the point where the Chinese Communist Party will be able to act with impunity if we don't stop them. Now we're losing our ability to stop the Communist Party. And they're gonna be able to act with impunity, not just within China's borders, which is the current mm -hmm. case, but uh, you know, around the world, places where the Belt and Road are. Like, they're already doing it in many of these developing countries acting with impunity, even even though it's, 
you know, upset in like Cambodia. All right. I was just thinking about that. Right? Like, yeah. like the Communist Party is like gambling, for example, is illegal in Cambodia uh, for Cambodians. But like because of collusion with the Cambodian president, uh, they've set up like a whole uh, like gambling town in Sienekville. And we did an episode about that on China Uncensored where like they're bringing all these Chinese people and Chinese money and Chinese things. And then like it's it's having a huge negative impact on Isn't it the essentially locals. run by the Chinese mafia? Oh, yeah. At this point. Yeah, yeah. no. I mean, it, the, the, the mafia. I mean, it's yeah, it's a totally private mafia. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Ask Hong right. Hongers about that. They yeah. talked about how the triads are connected to the, the party. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and we haven't talked a whole lot about that on our show, but like a lot of the times the, the the Communist Party will will conduct its operations not just through private companies, but actually through triads and other the underworld, you know, underworld type, you know, criminal organizations uh, that are also carrying out the party's agenda. But I think that makes sense because you know the China was taken over by a group of gangsters in 1949. So like it's it's essentially that same idea, that same mentality that's permeated that whole time. So it's actually probably easier to work with gangsters than to work with companies. Well, what's the difference? Ooh. Yeah. Well, Matt, you know, China has never invaded another country. The first you know, thing they did was invade Tibet. <laughs> no. Then they tried to invade Taiwan, but the U.S. stopped them. Oh, you're, t you're talking about, no, no, no. They've never, Tibet was part of China. China, I'm not, in 5,000 years of history, they've never invaded. You know, seriously, that was actually something Quatrinian said recently at a, yeah. at a press conference. So they do this like whitewashing of Chinese history that's not at all accurate. It, it would be great if she's saying that and just like, well, I guess it's in China. It's not in front of Western reporters, so mm -hmm. it wouldn't happen. But I'm just imagining like a wave of all the reporters just tackling her. I know. Like, <laughs> we're done. But we're already seeing China trying its hand at sanctioning the Western world uh, with H&M and Nike, uh, all these Western brands that try to, uh, you know, say we're not going to use Xinjiang slave labor cotton. Yeah. I mean, they've also sanctioned like... Uh, the professors, EU officials yeah, as and well. EU officials and professors. At, at they're trying their hands out at it, and mm -hmm. it's they're going to get to the point where Chinese sanctions could really hurt the West. Think about that. But but, but the the advantage of that is, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, like we don't see the problem until it happens to us, and so as the Communist Party starts to do these revenge sanctions against Westerners, Western elected officials, and Western companies, then like. People in the West are like, wait a second, maybe this does affect us. Maybe the Chinese Communist Party really is this evil mafia-like organization if that's destroying us. there had been some show trying to warn us for a decade. No, I think that they really, I, I mean, I think I welcome them doing this because it's it's great. You know, you don't have to kind of look for examples of it happening. It's, it's actually, it's honestly way more effective than China Uncensored. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like the whole, like economic, like the whole, like letting Australian lobsters die on the crates on like, you know, it's just like. The, yeah, they're, they're economic warfare. Yeah, I mean, but, but even Max was saying that even with all that, there's still. Look at the coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, how did they spin that to their advantage? Chris, we need China's help to deal with the coronavirus. We need to follow their methods and we need to get their vaccine. You can't even talk about that the virus came from China. I think, though, that they maybe have overstepped in that. Six months ago, the idea that it may have come from a Chinese lab 
was not anything that you could talk about without being considered a, a conspiracy theorist, crazy person. But now we have open letters being published in the New York Times with people saying we need an investigation into the origins of this and whether it came from a lab. Yeah. To, to be clear, the, the issue is whether it accidentally leaked from a Chinese lab. Not with some kind of bioweapon. Right. And, and you know, there's very few people saying that, but definitely the lab leak hypothesis. It was still is, treated like a crazy person thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, as, as I've long said, you know, these kind of accidents can happen all the time when you have lax safety standards and lax enforcement. And we've seen them happen before in China with other uh, things, you know, so like SARS. So like, it's just not that far out of the realm of possibility that, you know, people just made a mistake. And, you know, as I always say, never underestimate the power of human incompetence. Well, I mean, take a look at, at who was arguing against the lab leak hypothesis at the beginning, like WHO experts like Peter Daszak, who turns out to have close working relationships with the lab that may have leaked the virus. Just wait till the Chinese Communist Party, you know, sanctions him over something and then. Well, he already just I mean, yeah, I think this is, it took a year of the Chinese Communist Party trying to convince people that it came from all these other countries or, and also maybe like frozen food or German auto parts. Like they had to kind of, or the U.S. military, like I kept kind of having to get bigger and then they kept having, to, and then the whole like restricting the, the WHO report. And this, so they had to, it took like a year of them doing all of this stuff before people were able to publicly say things like, Wait a minute. Yes, there's what something weird. Lying? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean- we we have to keep up the pressure and then we have to like let the communist party keep making that mistake yeah and it requires people to be educated to know what's happening and make make a big stint about it if the if the public fully understands what's happening with china none of this would be tolerated yeah so the real solution is continue to listen to china unscripted and watch china uncensored and america uncovered while you're at it you're welcome once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll see you on all of our other shows. And this one. <laughs>